This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave D. Boat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. Today on the program, education, but not just through the lens of segregation and racism, also with a report on Juneteenth and how it's being taught in rural schools. That's all coming up next with Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Also, a little later on the program, activist John Washington will be here with Jay Moran. But first, sports writer John Warrow. You've seen his bylines on stories about the Bills and the Sabres. And when the shooting happened, he did what writers do. He wrote something. His essay on why it doesn't matter that the accused shooter isn't from here is online at WBFO.org. If you get a chance to read it, it really is some compelling material. But in the meantime, let's chat a bit about it with John. John, thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Tell me a little bit about the premise that you had when you wrote the column. Basically, that all the people that say, oh, the shooter's not from here are missing a certain point. What's the counterpoint that you'd like to make? Well, the point I wanted to make, I mean, and and I mean, I don't want, I don't want to down. I, I here, here's the thing, I was on vacation and I felt helpless, like in 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 with my colleagues covering the story, and I felt it was important for me to ex- at least exercise my mind and exercise my brain, and exercise my journalistic uh, instincts and reach out to people that I know. And to have them speak for Buffalo, to have a voice, to have Buffalo's voice out there um, as to what, and and because Buffalo is a unique town. It's a town that I've lived in for 22 years, and it is um, a place that really prides itself on community. And yet, I also know that there are flaws in this town that need to be addressed, and I felt that it would be a good place to start a discussion and at least get the voices of local people and get Buffalo's voice out there um, from people who are in the community and to discuss what needs fixing, what the flaws of Buffalo are, and yet the fact that Buffalo is a prideful community that really believes itself, considers itself the city of good neighbors. And here was a, here, here was a good launching point to see if we can aspire to that uh, to, to that after this tragic event. And so you reject the idea that just because we're able to say that, oh, he's not from here, doesn't mean, obviously, that racism isn't here. I think, I, I think as um, a few people uh, noted in speaking to me, that racism lives um, in, 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 in every community. Uh, and, and it's a discussion that needs to be, uh, needs to be, needs to be had. Um, and, and we experienced this here in Buffalo. Um, and even though Peyton Gendron, the, the, the shooter, wasn't from here, the alleged shooter wasn't from here, 
um, it doesn't mean that this problem doesn't exist in Buffalo. And I think it's a good time for Buffalo and its citizenry, prideful citizenry, to maybe confront just exactly what the issues are um, in our community, which is really in, in, geographically and, and, and just the way, the way it's divided um, um, with streets and, and, and communities and, and highways that were built in the 1950s. Um, I think it was important, uh, an important launching point to get get to get to this discussion. And uh, one of the quotes you have in the article comes from a Presbyterian minister. He's active in a lot of social justice circles around here. His name is Drew Ludwig. You quote him as saying, "This is a problem in Buffalo, but this isn't a Buffalo problem." Elaborate. Well, and and I think that's what we were getting, uh, what I was getting to, and I and when he told me that, I thought that was. I think a, a great way of, of, of saying how racism is an issue that needs to be confronted everywhere, not just in Buffalo. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, right across the river from Detroit. I mean, I know how segregated Detroit was, you know, especially with the white flight, you know, from, from the inner cities uh, to, to the suburbs of Detroit in the 1960s that, you know, was around the 19, the late 1960s riots in, in Detroit. So, I was around there, and I, I remember that happening. And, I mean, this is not a new issue. We've, you know, this nation has confronted, has been dealing with racism since really its inception to, 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 to a certain degree. So um, it is, it isn't a Buffalo problem, but it is a problem in Buffalo. And I thought that was a perfect way of, of, of Drew, you know, in, in, in saying how proud he is, uh, he is of this community, but also noting that it needs um, to aspire to be better. And that touches on the duality. Yes, we have a lot to be proud of. Uh, the city of good neighbors. You're a sports writer. Obviously, you know about the way we have over time rallied around losing teams, um, the way we shovel each other out during winter. There is much here to celebrate, I think we can argue, and you probably do. But at the same time, we don't want that to blind us to the discussion that needs to be had. Uh, you spoke to Bill's Hall of Famer, Thurman Thomas, a little bit about that. What did he have to say? Yeah, Thurman, uh, I mean, Thurman has is, is, is become part of this community. I mean, and he's dealt with racism. He, um, you know, I mean, he is he has a mixed-race marriage. And I know that was an issue back, back in the 90s. Um, but he also loves what Buffalo stands for and what he has seen Buffalo rally numerous times, whether it's to charitable causes, um, as, as has happened, you know, following this tragedy. And um, when it comes to losing, I mean, this team, you know, the, the Bills teams uh, of the 90s maybe in some way uh, highlighted what, what Buffalo is. A, 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 um, teams that lose still have this amazing support from a fan base that cherishes just, just, not, not the losing, but, but but the fact that the teams did Buffalo proud, um, and I think that community spirit is is something. I'm not sure if every community has it. Every community is proud of its own community, but there's something special to Buffalo. Um, I think because of its, um, just because of it, it, it seems in some ways the city that got lost in time. But if you, as I tell people. You have no reason to come to Buffalo, but if you wind up in Buffalo and don't have a good time or don't enjoy yourself or don't find, find something interesting about this town, well, that's on you because I think there is something special to Buffalo. And maybe, you know, that's why I felt 
having lived across the Across uh, across North America, I've lived in Vancouver. I felt that Buffalo, uh, you know, really deserved a voice um, to to express what this community is about, and that it is somewhat unique. Well, not even somewhat. You can't be somewhat unique. It's unique, um, a, a unique place um, in North America that's different than a lot of other places. And I'm I'm just not I'm just just not trying to be a homer here. I believe that there's something special here, and I think we can do better. John Walro is with us. He's a longtime local sports writer. He's written an essay addressing the idea that after the shooting, a lot of people were saying, oh, but the shooter's not from here. He examines it in an essay online at WBFO.org. It talks to activists. It talks even to sports people. And, John, uh, talk a little bit about that, too. Uh, I wonder if sports isn't perhaps uh, a vehicle for healing. Traditionally, if we go back, I don't know, even to the days of Jack Kemp protesting the um, the segregated hotels of the 60s that the teams had to use. Um, historically, sports has been a little more colorblind than society at large. That's very that's very true. I think um, and, and, and that's especially true, I, I think, in football where, you know, um, there is the, the bills in, in specific you know, have had numerous in-house locker room discussions that are close to the media, you know, in the aftermath of, uh, of George Floyd's murder, um, in the, you know, in the aftermath of, of um, you know, in, in determining whether to kneel or to follow, you know, and following Colin Kaepernick, following Colin Kaepernick in, um, you know, that type of, uh, of protest. Um and I also think that sports in many ways has an ability to heal in other ways when you see the tragic shooting in Las Vegas um, a few years back at that concert where the community rallied around the Vegas Golden Knights and that gave them some sense of relief. I still remember 911 when the sports teams in New York City began playing again. Um, and I think that they certainly gave some life or hope to or, or distraction much needed distraction to the community i want to crawl out on a limb here I, I know it's not proper i guess to ask a journalist his personal opinion and this essay is i, I should remind people that it's not just john Walro bloviating you talk to several different people but as we wind this interview down i would like to talk just a little bit about you are you optimistic john you always have to be optimistic. I mean, I, I mean to, to go. It's too easy to be cynical, um, and that is my and, and that is my approach to life. I, I, you you hope for the best. You really hope for the best, and you hope that there is some some change that comes out of this. Um, so I I can't answer that question by saying yes. I'm optimistic. It's it's not easy, but there's a lot of words that you know that are said. But we need action and. I guess we'll see down the road, but if you stop being optimistic, then the cynicism will just weigh you down. And lastly, John, a question that I like to end a, a lot of the interviews on, but especially on this topic in this time. What does Buffalo need? Oh, I think we saw it. I, I think we saw signs of... Um, I'm, I'm not, that, that, that's a tough question because Buffalo needs a lot of things. Um, but I, I, what really gave me optimism... Um, or maybe a sense that we are moving forward was I spent time, you know, at 
at, at a corner at watching the Pride Parade with my wife um, a few weeks back, and to see a celebration of multi-races, multi-genders, uh, what have you, and, and, and to see that parade run for two hours. I have never seen a two-hour lo- long parade. We left with baby, and, 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 and it was still going on. But to see that celebration, I think, really showed, you know, and, and not that far away. I mean, it, I think it really showed Buffalo's community spirit to have that number of amount of people show up um, for something and to really celebrate. It was the pride celebration, but I also happen to think that there was a celebration of Buffalo um, that it's uh, maybe str- <laughs> sorry. Getting a little emotional here because I think it, it showed Buffalo's true spirit. John Warrow, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. John is a local sports writer. He covers the Bills and the Sabres. His essay is online at WBFO.org. Up next, Bridget Jaipal Valenza on education. And later, Jay Moran with activist John Washington. Much more to come. Stay with us. It's one thing to love public media, but it's a special thing to support it. Consider this, if you've got a car you don't need anymore, or you've got one that's simply too expensive to repair, arrange to donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. It's easy for you, pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Here's how to get started. Go to wned.org slash vehicles. I'm Tom Calderon, President and CEO of Buffalo Toronto Public Media. In the wake of the recent tragic, racially motivated attack, which took the lives of 10 people and injured others here in Buffalo on May 14th, we remain committed to amplifying marginalized voices, reporting the news with the highest journalistic standards, and engaging our community in conversations that will move us forward. We will be here to help heal this city and come back stronger than ever. Hate has no home here in Buffalo. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget J. Paul Valenza. Later in the program, host Jay Moran speaks with John Washington, Afrofuturist at People's Action. First, though, this Sunday, the 19th, marks Juneteenth, which recalls the day in 1865 when U.S. soldiers freed the last remaining Confederate slaves in Galveston, Texas. In Western New York, educators find themselves figuring out how to present the story of emancipation to their students while including the recent Buffalo mass shooting into conversations about race. Another challenge for many school districts, explaining this important story in the African-American experience to a mostly white student body. WBFO's Michael Morosiak found out how one such district did it. 
It's a recent Wednesday morning along Jefferson Avenue. Weekly food distribution projects and markets are setting up not far from the still closed tops. And on this morning, Deanna Cummings has just finished a cup of tea before running errands. Earlier in the week, she was in the Springville Griffith Institute School District performing as Harriet Tubman. I feel as if they really um, get to see and hear more about, you, can, you learn more when you see it. And the children, they really liked me coming in and telling them about Harriet and the experience that Harriet had. And they get more out of that than just by reading it in a book. Cummings plays the legendary Underground Railroad figure in many schools. It was one of the lessons Springville Griffith teachers and administrators used this month to educate their students about the African-American experience. Springville Griffith's student population is, according to Superintendent James Bialisic, 94% white. But we're diverse in lots of different ways, too. And so that's why we keep coming back to those ideas of kindness and acceptance, because those, those are transferable regardless of what type of differences you're talking about, that we want to be accepting of everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've been through. We want to make sure that we are, we're always treating people the right way. And so um, I think it's important to build that capacity, especially when you're in a district that is not as diverse in terms of race, um, that students understand that, that there are lots of differences out there in the world, and regardless of those differences, we always want to be treating people the right way. There was the challenge of making sure students were given an appropriate lesson about Juneteenth earlier in the month. By the holiday itself, regular classes have ended, and many students are taking final exams. And then there was last month's tragedy. Drew Beider, a middle school social studies teacher at Springville Griffith, explains how they inserted a racially motivated act of violence into their lessons. What we try to do here at Springville is make sure that our students connect to the fact that uh, ending racism begins with them. And But this Juneteenth holiday is, is one that is, I, I feel, and very strongly I know our, our superintendent and school board does as well, it's not an African-American holiday. It's one about human freedom. So when people found out about the liberation of the slaves, when the slaves found out about their liberation, of course they were joyful and, 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 and they should be. So this ho holiday is uh, commemorating that very American moment. But today in, in Springville and in Kenmore and in North Tonawanda, we're all African-American, especially after the tragedy of what happened at Tops. Bialisic adds that while Springville is more than 30 miles from downtown Buffalo, people in his town consider themselves a part of Buffalo. I think most people that you talk with, if you ask them where they're from and they live around here, they're going to say, I'm from Buffalo, right? Like we, we all identify with that city, that area. We have a lot of pride. And just because we're 25 minutes south, doesn't mean that we have any less pride in our city and all the things that Buffalo represents and all the wonderful things that have been happening in that city in the last 10 years. I mean, it's been a, a great renaissance, and I think it hurt all of us, regardless of where we live in the western New York area, when that happened. And we all, you know, feel, feel terribly for the families that experience loss. We feel terribly that, that it even happened. And so, you know, from that perspective, we're all part of a western New York community, and, and so we grieve just like everyone else does. Back in the city, Cummings reflected on her role educating local children about Western New York's role in freeing many slaves long before Juneteenth. A lot of them didn't know that Harriet um, came through this air, these areas, came through Syracuse, Rochester. They didn't know that. They didn't know that Frederick Douglass even preached at the Michigan Street Baptist Church. And then he would go over and preach at the AME 
Zion Church, Episcopal Church. So they didn't know that. They didn't know that a lot of the histories that happened is happening right here in Buffalo. I mean, we have the Michigan Street Corridor. We have um, Lewiston. We have Roy Croft. We have different spots here that the children don't even know about. They'll be able to um, go to their parents, their teachers, and ask questions more and get better answers from what I can give them. And their teachers will be able to explain to them a lot better more and give them more and broaden their horizons more in the education of African Americans and Juneteenth and everything else. Cummings is among those looking forward to the weekend celebrations of Juneteenth in Buffalo, the first since the COVID pandemic, and it's a welcome festive occasion for a community that is just beginning its long journey towards healing. Michael Mrosiak, WBFO News. To continue this conversation, I'm joined by Associate Professor of Social Studies Education in the Department of Learning and Instruction in the Graduate School of Education at the University at UB, excuse me, at the University of Buffalo, Dr. LeGarrett King. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have to, to ask, how do you feel when you hear Juneteenth isn't an African-American holiday, that just like we're all Irish on St. Patrick's Day, we're all African-American on Juneteenth. You know, um, it's hard. I, 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 I did, did kind of kind of raise my eyebrow, you know, when I heard that, but I understand that it's coming from a good place, right? Mm -hmm. um, my biggest concern about, you know, any of this advocacy, right, is, is well, what are we going to do about it, right? So if this is within the uh, school system, not only are we focusing on uh, Juneteenth or any other emancipation days that black people have been celebrating, you know, for a long time, um, what policies are we doing in our schools to make sure that our curriculum is more equitable and diverse, you know? How, uh, um, how are we treating our black and brown students in our uh, uh, school spaces, right? Um, the action, I think, is more important than the words. And um, um, so, so we're, you know, you know I, it comes from a good place, right? But uh, uh, the histories are a little bit different. Um, the collective of our country just figured out about Juneteenth, right, uh, two years ago, right? right. So, 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 you know, you know it, 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 it's just one of those things. I don't want to be discouraging. So your research has been in examining how black history and race is taught and learned in schools. What led you down that path? Yeah, so three things. So um, one was my schooling experience growing mm. up in Louisiana. Um, and I'm 44 years old, so I went to school in the 80s and 90s. And, and I distinctly remember um, that some of the historical narratives just didn't make sense, right? You know, plantation owners were nice to their slaves. They, they, they um, felt that they were, you know, um, part of their family and not, not, not all these people. And, and, and I, I used to sit there as a young child and say, this just doesn't make sense. Why didn't they fight back? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Right. Um, and, and, and from then on, you know, I was like, okay, well, hey, 
I need to learn more about this stuff. So I, I didn't learn black history in school. I, I, I learned, um, you know, black history from from the home encyclopedias, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, we had back in the day before <laughs> Google uh, um, and and from church and from communities and everything like that. Number two, in graduate school, I just started learning about the history of black history and the history of black history started, you know, all the way in the 19th century. Right. Particularly in schools. Right. So we've been trying to do this thing improving black history and race um, education since the 19th century, and we just can't get it right. And then last, you know, from my my group of parents, right, we always talk about the horrendous um, nature of how race and black history are not taught, right, are mm-hmm. taught in a particular way in schools. And, and we always have these um, conversations. So, you know, you know, for me, it was easy when I I got into grad school to say, okay, hey, I need to focus on this to really kind of understand what is black history and how is black history and race taught in um, schools around the country and around the world. So, you know, back in the day, if one was paying attention in school, uh, we learned about landmark court cases, uh, including Brown versus the Board of Education. It was a pivotal case that desegregated schools. Um, it is frequently lauded. It is frequently pointed to as being this pivotal moment for um, black students, for those who, you know, were in what people considered disadvantaged school districts or school buildings. Um, it was also really a pivotal decision for black and brown students, the students themselves, because of what they were learning. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'll take a, 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 a different approach than how we teach brown um, in schools, right? So in schools, like brown is taught as this this wonderful thing, yes, right? Uh, yes. That it integrated uh, schools, therefore integrated society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one thing that I love to um, talk about in professional developments is, is this notion that we teach about black history but we don't teach through black history, meaning that we don't take the historical perspectives from black people, which makes the historical narrative totally different. So if we taught Brown through black people's perspectives, we will learn that, number one, right, a lot of black people did not want to integrate with white people in schools because we understood what would happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people didn't didn't agree with the NAACP and their approach, but the NAACP couldn't win based on fairness because we already had a, a core case with that, Plessy versus Ferguson, right? Right. Um, so, so now, Brown versus Board, what happens? Integration means integrating into white spaces, not black spaces. So black teachers lost their jobs. Black administrators lost their jobs or they got demoted. Um, Brown, Brown made it seen that black and brown schools were inferior. And in fact, um, my good friend out of the University of Virginia, Derek Aldrich, has this wonderful um, um, oral history project called Teachers of the Movement. And you hear all these teachers and all these students who were segregated back in the day said, our, our, our schools was wonderful. When we integrated those schools, we looked around and we said, wait a minute, we're not behind. Right. right. Um, and so you you had all these 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 folks that wasn't really, really um, 
positive for 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 black students. Uh, a few years ago, I did a uh, a panel of people who were the first to integrate their schools in South Carolina, and there was a wonderful question from a student that's that and and they asked, "How did you handle racism from your classmates?" Right? Overwhelmingly, the panel said, "We didn't have we we didn't experience racism from our classmates." Remember, these these people were in elementary school at the time in the early seventies. Right. Um, all delivered speed. Um, and and but they all said we experienced racism from our teachers, right? Um, and because they understood that their teachers did not want to teach them, right? And so if you follow the trajectory of you know the achievement gap, it started in the seventies. You know, blaming black students for not wanting to learn without really questioning why teachers didn't. Um, why teachers weren't uh, culturally relevant in in their uh, teaching practices. Statistics show that the majority of teachers of K through 12 are white. Um, and that really defines the black experience through school. Uh, how, first of all, how does one approach that problem? And then secondly, you know, we talk about teaching teachers. So talk a little bit about that for me. So it will all depend. I think a lot of teachers go into education, particularly if they're trying to teach, um, you know, black students or predominantly black, you know, you know, schools thinking that there's something totally different with black children as compared to other children. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 it's. it's it's one of those things where these particular uh, teachers coming in need to understand that these students are humans, that they deserve, you know, respect, academic accountability. Right. You know, that that's that's the biggest thing. People think that, oh, you know, we shouldn't be academic rigorous, you know, you know, within those spaces. Now, that may look a little different in different spaces, but you still have to have academic accountability, um, care, right? And then also, you know, being culturally relevant, understanding the uh, students' cultural backgrounds, I think is extremely important. And that's, you know, getting into community. That's um, attending various different, um, you know, aspects. Speaking of Brown, you know, teachers used to be in the community. So you saw your teachers in church. You saw your teachers at right. the grocery store. You saw your teachers in the community, right? And a lot of these, um, you know, teachers don't know anything about those cultures, right? And they don't get ingrained in those cultures to really understand, oh, this is, you know, this is how, or this is what they say, this is what they mean about that. Instead, they always come into this this saviors complex, right? Complex. Like, hey, hey, yeah. I'm going to save you instead of saying, oh, let me help educate you. And then also let me learn, you know, from you as well. Exactly. Um you're very big on the counter narration. Mm -hmm. So again, this this sort of script that we've all heard in school where um, black people literally didn't exist until slavery. Right. Um, what does counter narration mean to you? Counter narration means um, we need to rethink how we think of history. History is not really history. History are histories, right, with the I-E-S versus the Y. Mm -hmm. Y denotes singular, right? I-E-S denotes multiple perspectives. And it's extremely important for us to understand that there's no such thing as historical uniformity, 
right? Everyone has historical experiences that are totally different and that all these people deserve and they respect to have their histories told, right? So the counter narrative is how do we expand the historical narrative from the Eurocentric model that we have right now? And that's that's a fact. Scholars have been talking about the Eurocentric model of education, um, you know, as early as, as, as the early 20th century, right? Um, 1900s and so. So, so it is extremely important to bring multiple narratives. So histories instead of history. We were talking before we came on the air about how, um, you know, history isn't a static Mm -hmm. thing. It it isn't what you learn in a textbook and the things that you're taught in school. It, It isn't static. It is constantly in motion because we ourselves as a people are constantly in motion. We are learning. We are challenging things. We are asking questions and finding out certainly that history from one point of view is much different than the other points of right. view. Uh, and that's really important to to remember as as students go through school, as teachers teach this information. I'm talking to Dr. LeGarrett King about black education. Tell me about critical race theory. (laughs) (laughs) The name critical race theory strikes fear into the hearts of white parents. So, all right. So, so critical race theory um, is a subject, uh, academic scholarship that, um, you know, explores, um, you know, how race and racism has been reified in our society. Right. Uh, it goes uh, past kind of this individual understanding of racism. Right. Because someone called you the N word or someone said, I don't like black people. Um, the average person kind of sees that as, you know, racist where CRT kind of explores notions of systemic racism, how society uh, um, you know, does that intersectionality and all these particular, um, you know, aspects. Now, I would push back just a little bit to say that the majority of white parents are fearful of CRT. CRT, I I still believe is the minority of people that are making a lot of noise. The problem is a lot of those uh, white parents are not speaking out against those those who are making more noise. Right. But Mm -hmm. the fear is that CRT brings an identity crisis because history is about identity. It helps us understand who we are, right? right? And when we have a history curriculum that says, hey, yeah, we made mistakes, but now we fixed it and everything's all good. And then you're saying, wait a minute, uh-uh, this is how this system didn't change, right, that you thought it changed, right? And now people are, are up in arms because we have this progressive, happy-go-lucky history curriculum in our schools. You have a conference coming up. Uh, in next week? Uh, next month. Uh, next month. Yes, yes. Next month. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the Teaching Black History Conference, this is the fifth Teaching Black History Conference that, I, that, that I've thrown. This is the first one we're going to have in Buffalo. Um, and it's a conference that uh, convenes educators and black history proponents from all over the world to, to learn about um, the most effective black history curriculum practices and instructional practices. So we have three great guest speakers, over 50 teacher workshops, over three days at City Honors High School on July 22nd through the 24th. Um, and so, so so last year we had 750, and this is a hybrid um, uh, conference, so it's both in person and online. Wonderful. Um, we will have that information 
on WBFO.org so that uh, people can figure out when and what and all of the details will be there. Um, thank you, Dr. LeGarrett King, for joining us today. Up next is Jay Moran with John Washington. Stay with us. One of the best ways to support WBFO is to become a valuable sustainer. It is the most mutually beneficial relationship we can have with our members. Whether you give annually or monthly as a sustaining member, you allow not only us, but also yourselves to be financially prepared throughout the year. Plus, the amount you give is entirely up to you. Whatever you are comfortable with, no amount is too small. Please take a moment to visit our website at wbfo.org or give us a call at one 877-456-8870 to donate today. Thank you. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. If Our Water Could Talk, Erie County Fair, two Frederick Law Olmsted documentaries, and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED-PBS, now available on YouTube. listening to Buffalo What's Next. There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the talk to us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. Uh, yes, yeah, so this is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran, and in our next segment, we're with uh, John Washington. Uh, John, for a long time, uh, well-known for his work with Push Buffalo here in Buffalo, still involved in ho- housing, but on a, a more national level. We'll get into that a little bit. And also, uh, Afro, Afrofuturism. I, I struggle with that. I apologize, John, with that. We want to get into that, too. But first, let's, let's talk about housing mm-hmm. just a little bit about Buffalo, because in our conversation before we went on the air, mm-hmm. you really brought up a lot of things. And I, just a couple couple of questions. First of all, in terms of evictions from the BMHA, the Buffalo mm-hmm. Municipal Housing Authority, how many do they have each year? Uh, they file about 4,000 each year, and they're the biggest evictor in the city of Buffalo. And, um, you know, one of the worst public housing authorities uh, in the in the nation, if not the worst. And you've, uh, you, know, you when you were with Push Buffalo, obviously you dealt with it to a certain extent, but now that you're doing this more on a national level, mm-hmm. you have other scenarios to compare to. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a national public housing crisis and, um, you know, there's there's been, uh, since 1999, it's actually been illegal to make investments in public housing. Uh, there's an amendment called the Faircloth Amendment that prevents uh, certain types of investments. Every public housing authority has been trying to figure out how to basically phase themselves out. And, and for me, that's a recipe for, you know, massive homelessness and for, for furthering the poverty and segregation that we see across the country. Uh, but looking around the country, I think Buffalo has the worst, uh, is the poorest, most segregated and most corrupt city in the country. And I think that that, um, that, that feeds into why um, the east side is 92% black, why uh, we have some banks that are redlining our communities and keeping people from being able to own their homes, and why people in the city that has the worst housing stock, the oldest housing stock, um, you know, are, are suffering so much, and, and specifically, um, you know, black people whose homes are typically worth less, uh, undervalued, uh, who struggle to get home ownership because of redlining, who are forced into then a rental market that also, um, you know, doesn't treat them with full dignity. And I think these are really important 
things to highlight that, that people, I think some people think that we've gotten a lot further uh, around housing than we actually have because they see like nice new shiny buildings, but but actually things have been getting a lot worse. And another interesting part of, of this whole issue is the I guess we'll call it rootlessness Mm -hmm. that is evolving out of the housing situation here in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. How frequently people are on the move in the city of Buffalo, Mm -hmm. notably on the east side of Buffalo, and what that does to the fabric of a community. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we all kind of grew up in this like Americana illusion of, you know, you live in a neighborhood, you you work at a job for 30 years, you pay your mortgage for 30 years, and everybody in the community stays together and raise their kids together. The reality is the average person in America now is moving once every 18 months. Uh, and that's average. That's Let's the average person, that. yep. right? So that means poorer people are, are moving far more often. And, um, you know, because of the commodification of housing, because of how much money is in housing, because housing is federally backed. I mean, that's what foreclosures and mortgages are about. Every mortgage creates more and more money. So when we talk about inflation and the pressure that's on the average person, it's the housing costs, it's the rent. But embedded in that, it's also the money that the federal government is putting into, into these mortgages and, and putting into housing and the money that it's expected out. And so the more people that make money off of housing, the more it's going to cost and the more people who are going to be poor. And the way our cities are designed, those poor people are going to be concentrated in black and brown neighborhoods. And Buffalo is is the best example of that. And what that that also does is it means that, you know, we don't have neighborhoods in the same way, right? I think Buffalo is one of the last places in in the country that still has a lot of real neighborhoods where you can find people who've lived there for 50 or 60 years, but that is eroding. That is going away. And people, as as housing prices go up, people can't pay the taxes or they're being forced to sell. They can't get the financing to fix roofs and foundations, so they're forced to sell. Uh, And then people are buying them up and renting them out and house flipping and making these doubles, and that makes for a really transient community. People are moving in, moving out, getting evicted, buying a house, but people are not staying together, valuing each other, and developing community um, in in the same way that they used to uh, because they can't afford to. And when we talk about making a community, there's been a lot of discussion here on this program and elsewhere uh, since May 14th that we need to be together, when there need to be spaces where we can be together. You have an interesting take on that, though. At the same time, there actually are great parks, Mm -hmm. but even the parks Mm -hmm. are segregated to a certain extent or even to a large extent. And there is a structural problem that's that's that really plays into that. Well, I mean, the 33 cut cut the. You know, greatest park system in the world in, in half. And so we have public spaces, but we have, uh, again, the worst public transportation infrastructure. Uh, the, the NFTA continues to cut bus routes, uh, continues to to treat riders as expendable and and really is just is just phasing itself out. Um, and I think that that means that people, especially people who don't have cars, don't have access to the same places. And it's why, you know, in Buffalo, if you you know, it's very easy to get to the Elmwood, Delaware quarter. It's very easy to get downtown, um, but to move around on the east side, to move around um, even on you know different parts of the west side is is incredibly difficult, and it means that people with cars and money are going to be in certain places, and, and people without them are going to be in certain places, and I think that it's it's by design, and I think that 
as a nation and especially as our city, we have to start to look at and being willing to look at every day the fact that we live in, a, in, a, in an apartheid, right? There, there are separate systems for separate people here. And racism is a story that is told that says that that black people are responsible for the ghettos that were created for them to be put in. Uh, when we talk about the Warsaw Ghetto in Poland, people are very clear that, that Hitler changed the rules for Jewish people so that they would be forced to live in that ghetto. And the average white American does not believe that about the ghettos of America. And the average person in Buffalo doesn't believe that about the east side of Buffalo. They believe that people deserve to live there. They deserve that their conditions uh, and not, they don't look at the federal and local policies that have created those conditions and how uh, insanely hard it is for people without supports um, to come out of these conditions and be quote unquote successful. And I think that that's what, what's really hard about this moment is that people um, are, are having to take an honest look at the fact that we live in, in, in a society that is just as segregated as it was. Um, you know, when, when, when we celebrate Martin Luther King and we celebrate the mountaintop, like we haven't anywhere near close to reach it. And I think that moments like this force us to, to realize that because this, this terrorist, this white supremacist, you know, found this city because of structural racism, because structural racism created it. He knew mm-hmm. where he was going and he knew who he'd be able to kill. He, he looked for the highest concentrations of black people in New York State. And Buffalo is the most segregated place in the country. And the east side of Buffalo is the highest concentration of, of black people in the nation. And so, you know, for 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 him, it was the best place um, to to try to strike all of our hearts. Uh, and I think that he took the lives of some really powerful, beautiful, and amazing people. But they were there and they were put in that position because uh, even the deacon, you know, gave people rides. Like he understood and was resisting this system of lack of access to transportation and the impact it had on his community. And so what I want to say is America is apartheid. It is racist by design. Um, and so, you know, giving out food and raising money and all of these things are great. But this city and most American cities are designed to produce these outcomes. And until we address the fact that this country was designed to segregate and to create this modern duality, this this neoconservative, neoliberal politic, this left-right duality isn't just you know, people's personalities, it's, it's Main Street, right? And it's like one side of Main Street and the other. And it starts there. And until we start to change the way that we do federal policy, change the way that we fund cities, change the way that we resource communities and value communities and even just talk about them, um, all of this other stuff is, is going gonna, is gonna to fade away. And, and we're going to be back in the same position that um, people like Robert Moses uh, worked so hard for their entire lives to make sure that their legacy was the fact that the East Side was still going to be 92 percent black long after he died. Talking about how federal and local policy comes to a fruition in, in certain cases, we could talk about the feds, we could talk about local. But when it comes to the BMHA, mm-hmm. it's kind of a combination of both in a lot of ways. And the BMHA... Uh, just what one point above being in receivership? Explain what that means. Um, you know, basically, if you look at the conditions, uh, there was an investigation done earlier. We all know the conditions. Uh, people joke about them now because they've been so bad for so long. But people are living um, in conditions that violate the warranty of habitability, that violate every single federal policy on the books. Uh, there's a high level of corruption. Uh, we have a mayor and um, 
entire BMHA staff that are under multiple federal investigations right now um, for for contracts, for bid rigging, um, you know, even the Simonellis and Alan Colliero's from Empire State Development um, were, were caught bid rigging. Um, and so basically they're they're laundering the people's money uh, in order to create jobs for people while people in the Perrys are living and suffering while there's 700 empty units that easily could be online uh, while we're paying the Buffalo Police that could Department. Be in your, you've, you've been in there, you've seen that, you, there's no doubt that that could I be mean, done. They let them rot. They let them rot with the heat on for seven, eight years now. I mean, they, they evicted people out of them and they made the, the explicit and I think illegal decision not to put new people in those homes. Um, and they've just continued to let them rot and not maintain them. And so um, I think there's there's very simple ways that most people could, could get those units back online. There's an enormous amount of state and federal money to do so, uh, but that's not the purpose of this BMHA. The purpose of this BMHA is to is to phase itself out. And if you look at all of the numbers, all of the behavior, all the decisions they make, it is not an institution that wants to last and serve people. It's an institution that gives out enormous contracts to people who uh, have political connections um, and, and is trying to set up the developer class in Buffalo to, to continue this segregation of, of again, giving them free land, free resources, no taxes downtown. Um, and, and who pays most of those taxes are people in, in other neighborhoods um, that then can't afford them and have to sell them. And it's just this, this cycle, this loop uh, that continues to push uh, people further into poverty and, and make make it harder and harder for them to live their lives. And I think the BMHA has a role. I think, you know, City Hall has a role. Empire State Development uh, and the state and the county all have a role. And, and I think that's what makes this moment really difficult for the average person in Buffalo is, you know, everybody wants to help. Yeah. But, you know, um, no one has, everyone has also participated in making this the poorest and most segregated place. And so it's hard to, it's hard to hear sometimes that someone wants to help when this has been going on for so long. And I would think that average person would come back and say to you, I had no idea. Right. This is what I've supported because I always thought I was helping. Right. And then people think it's natural. People think this is just what happens instead of looking at the numbers, looking at the corruption, looking at um, even even, you know, the the Buffalo Niagara Partnership and the Community Foundation and the way that they fund. If you if you look at any map of Buffalo and where resources go, um, you you see the east side. I mean, years a few years ago, it was Evans Bank. Right. They they were incredibly public like incredibly open about the fact that they did not lend to anyone on the east side and they 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 wouldn't have had any consequences if they hadn't explicitly put it in marking materials that ever which which most banks do. I M&T mean, Bank has been here since 1856. Uh, Bob Wilmers is notorious for his political influence and um you know they 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 4% of their originations for mortgages are for black people. City's 38% black. You can't tell me that there's more than 4% of black people that, that have the credit and capacity to purchase homes. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's it's really hard for the average person to acknowledge that redlining and all of these other things, even though you might see a black realtor on Facebook with his thumbs up and selling a book to it, when you look at the statistics and the numbers, um, 
black people receive less than 4% of the lending in this in this in this community and so you know all of our small businesses all of our homes are um, in a much less stable position than, than, than they are for white people. And I think that's not, you know, white people often think about white privilege as an attack, but it's it's a reality that there is a racial wealth gap. It was You might be able policy. to get a home improvement loan to fix your loan or a small business loan that would help facilitate your business and keep it moving at a critical time. Yes. And, and, and so you get more help. And um, and then, you know, when it comes to even car insurance, you know, people on the east side pay more in car insurance. Uh, it, there's just the, the black tax, right? The cost of being and then that that is expanded by the poor tax. And then if you're a woman and then if you're queer and you add all of these layers. And so it, it really at this moment, I'm, I'm I really encourage people to to just sit and not try to come up with an exact answer or a single thing to do. But think about like the way in which you live your life in a way that allows you to not see or interact with with so many people and with the, like how brutally bad life is in Buffalo for, for a lot of people. John Washington, our guest on Buffalo, what's next? Uh, John, we, we came with this uh, two-pronged thing. Your work with housing, of course, uh, has uh, you know been what's, what's uh, brought you uh, made you well known here in uh, Buffalo, especially with Push Buffalo now more on a national level, but also, also Afrofuturism. We wanted to get into this because it's yeah. now it's almost two parts of of the same thing. Right. One is this dire reality mm-hmm. that has layers and layers of complexity upon it, and then another one that it, it's taking a, a more hope, hopeful look at the future. Well, I think that. Um for me, a lot of the violence and a lot of what is really hard about being black in Buffalo, um, being black in general, is just that if you look at history logically, it's hard to believe that things are going to get better. And it's hard to like wake up in the morning and see a future in a city that would um, you know, isolate its people this way. Um, and so to me, Afrofuturism is really about building a vision. I believe that everyone from every person who ever Every ancestor that I have and that we all collectively had that got us to this point believed in a future beyond what they could see. Uh, I, I think a lot about, you know, Harriet Tubman and the thousands of people that she freed and the fact that she, you know, believed that each that, that in some one of those people, like there was going to be an answer. There was going to be something that, that she couldn't see. And it was her job to make sure that as many people survived and got free and could then continue to do that. And so acknowledging the position we're in, acknowledging how bad things are, we, we have to believe um, that there is a future beyond this. And ultimately, I think, you know, why we use the Black Panther and why we use Wakanda is it's based on this idea of, you know, they, Africans were doing metallurgy and building castles 3,000 years before Greece and Rome were, were even ideas. Um, and it is actually Africa that developed Europe. It's Africa that developed the Middle East. It's Africa that developed Asia. And it's not to be superior, but to say just scientifically, that's where human beings come from and that's where our development has birthed from. And those are the people who, who spent the longest time in practice and place and colonialism and the, the brutal way that the rest of the world has treated Africa held Africa back. And I think that the same is true of of every place where there's an African diaspora, especially in America. And so the idea is, you know, what if that didn't happen? How far 
would Benin, how far would uh, Kemet, how far would, or Egypt, uh, how far would Punt, how far would these nations have been able to go had they not been pillaged, had that had people not been enslaved, and how far could we go um, if white supremacy didn't exist? And actually imagine that, focus on that, and then figure out ways that we can use um you know, the Kwanzaa principles and principles of African unity to start to move our community toward a vision of the future. Um, because right now, when, when we when you sit in the past, it's incredibly difficult um, to, to move forward or to believe and to hope. Now, so you uh, and your group, as I, you're actually, you know, getting together, holding mm-hmm. sessions, usually with young people, not always. Yeah, try to be intergenerational. And uh, not necessarily all black people as yeah, well. Right. Because uh, the galactictribe.org mm-hmm. is the website you can go to to find yes. out about it. Talk to, talk to us all about what a typical session might be like. Um, we usually uh, start off just with a check-in, you know, checking on how people are, how they're feeling. And you know, sometimes people don't want to be totally public about how they're feeling, but we try to be very aware. Um, we have... Usually we'll read uh, an issue of the Black Panther and we focus on uh, Tanahashi Coates was a writer for uh, for a few runs that were um, just really powerful, futuristic retelling of what happened in Maroon communities and slave rebellions. Um, we read a lot of Reginald Hudlin's and Christopher Priest's work and really unpack um, some of these themes, these dynamics and these ideas and show, you know, how the characters um, are able to show up really powerfully because of the social structure of Wakanda, which is which is really based on um, on, on Pan African Pan African socialism um, and and the leadership of of the folks who liberated a lot of African countries during the fifties and sixties, and I think that. Um, we, we try to unpack it. We try to talk about lessons. We do this, you know, from Juneteenth to Kwanzaa. We talk about um, the Kwanzaa principles, taking one each month, talking about how we can uh, implement them in our lives. Uh, and then we usually make art or have some sort of visionary exercise where uh, an aunt, you know, who's, who's uh, our main facilitator is always really good at thinking of good questions to challenge, especially young people to think about what things might look like in the future and, um, you know, what things we need to think about or change and envision for like, how do we want life to look? Uh, and, and actually saying, you know, especially if you're a young person, like you, you have an opportunity to, to live out a vision and we want to support you doing that. So we also have a Wakanda Alliance, a Afrofuturist Academy, where we have a, a youth group that does an after school program. They help us facilitate our sessions as well. And it's been really just powerful to, to watch a lot of them grow and to see um, that. Honestly, I think all of them are going to create things that I could never think of. That's quite a statement. Um, what are some of the things that you're hearing from these young, young folks? Um, I think that right now it's really hard to be a young person because your life and everyone's life around you is on display. Um, And I get a a, a big sense that people want to use technology at the same time as they want it to relate well to nature. Um, So, you know, we do a lot of like urban design things and different ideas about how people want to design parks. I think people are really concerned with climate change. I think that we have a generation that's growing up like day one, very clear that their life might end uh, because of how we've treated this planet. And so, so many ideas about transportation, about cars, about magnet trains, about um, public parks 
parks and spaces where, you know, you can do yoga, do oxygen work, do, you know, taking advantage of the advances in health and, and all of these things and really putting them in public space, like putting them in places where everyone has access to them is something that is a really through line. They, they want to be self-educated. I think a lot of them want to be guided in their education and not directed. Like they don't want to be told, like, you need to learn about this. But I think a lot of them really are looking for their curiosity to be cultivated. Uh, so much in music, right? Music and entertainment um, and, 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 and being able to have a studio like this that they could come to and play around with and learn in. Uh, yeah. Interesting that you should say that because there are plans being talked about by our CEO about just something just like that. We'll have to. Okay. I'm not going to. I can't be the spoiler alert on that uh, just yet. But John, we're we're winding down here with about 45 seconds to go. You know, we've looked at kind of the dire realities. We've looked at this idea of, of of grasping a better future. But what about the impact of 10 people being shot at that top supermarket and what how it is impacting, especially these young people uh, right now. Uh, for the ones who watch the video, we, we need a lot of more mental health support um, and support from our communities um, for the rest of folks. Like, I, I think that what we what we really need to do is to stay to try to hold this moment. Everybody's thinking differently. Everybody's reflecting. Everybody has let go of some of the defense mechanisms and excuses they make for for why we all allow all this stuff to happen. Um, and I want folks to like sit in that struggle and really think about like what is the most powerful way that you can live out your values in this moment? Um, because there are people whose values are to kill me and to kill the people in this city that that I love and that I think that hopefully we all love. And that's that's what they value and that's what they love and they live it out incredibly powerfully and if we are not doing the same um, then we will continue to be victims of people who are going to act on their values more than we will. John Washington come back and join us again soon okay? Thank you so much for having me. John Washington with us on uh, Buffalo What's Next we'll be back with you on Monday this of course is member supported WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo WOLN Oldean and WUBJ Jamestown Time is 11 o'clock.